0: Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. I'm delighted to say, for this Planet Pod special, that I've been joined by Pen Haddo and it's a huge honour and a great treat. And I'm hoping that Pen will share both some of his experiences up to date, but also the new campaigns that he's working on now. So, Pen, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to this. So, can you tell me about where it all started and why, really?
1: Well, for me, it started as far back as it can do um, with the lady who looked after me when I was a very small uh, child, uh, along with my mother, of course. Um, So. Enid Wigley was her name, and uh, I knew her as as an elderly lady in her late 70s. Her first job, though, had been uh, as a governess to look after Captain Scott's son. Um, So Captain Scott died uh, on his way back from the South Pole, wrote a number of letters to sponsors and friends and family, including his wife. And one of the paragraphs that he wrote to his wife, this letter, of course, along with others, was found about nine months later and eventually found his way back to his wife, um, said... um, get the boy interested in the natural world. There are some schools that see that as more interesting than competitive sport and keeping him out in the fresh air. Now, uh, Catherine Scott, um, Peter's mother, Peter was three when his father died, um Took this very seriously and through a process of uh, toughening him up to the cold, uh, w- with Enid Wigley taking that role as the governess, uh, putting him out for longer, longer periods with less and less clothing in the autumns, winters, and springs. And eventually, uh, that was for five years, near to three to eight years old for Peter, and then. Uh, um, getting him involved with the director of the Natural History Museum. So um, as a relatively young man, he was off on tour with the director um, studying wildlife. That led to a great passion of Peter's, which was wildfowling, which um, can be summarised as shooting ducks and geese. Um, But from that um, play, if you like, uh, that that sort of hobby, that pleasure, um, he then developed an interest in the subjects and became uh, a world-leading authority on uh, ducks, swans, and geese, um, predominantly from, from, the, from the Arctic region, unlike his father, Captain Robert Falcon Scott, who was obviously an Antarctic man. And that interest led to him setting up Slimbridge um, near in, in Gloucester and um, the Wildfarm and Wetlands Trust he set up. He was one of the founders of the WWF, and was its founding chairman for the first 10 years of the WWF's existence. He is a brilliant, He was a brilliant artist as well, and actually designed the Panda logo that we all know. Uh, now one, I think, the top 10 most famous identities in the world, uh, brand-wise. And, and also had a, a role to play in uh, the Antarctic Treaty System, which protects the entire Antarctic continent from commercial and military activity. And it's a science-only reserve So, Enid Wigley looked after him, her next job was to look after my father, told my father all about these exciting things, uh, and this family that she'd worked with. My father soaked it all up, didn't have any of the sort of sparse regime applied to him, um, toughening him up, but thought if he ever had a son, that he would um, think about doing that. Not only did he, was I my father's oldest son, but, uh, uh, and got the treatment... Uh, both actually in wildlife, uh, wildfowl terms as well as uh, induction to the cold when I was very young um, under Enid's um, authority because my father looked after Enid until she died um, and, um, and Enid's job was in part to keep an eye on me and make sure that I soaked up all the polar stories because she knew all the polar stories um, and, uh, and, and made sure I got toughed up to the cold with you know, less and less clothing, longer, longer periods. I was born in Scotland, near Glen Eagles, quite, quite fresh up there in the winters. So it <laughs> didn't do me any harm though, Amanda. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> okay, so that is how you okay. know, people think, how did this all start? Well, that's actually how it started. And spool forwards, I used to, frankly, treat the Arctic Ocean as a playground it was somewhere that I could express myself, uh, my abilities, my, my interests, and so on. Uh, and it became focused into this attempt to be the first person to go purely solo, no external interventions, from the coast um, to the pole, uh, the North Geographic Pole in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, um, and which was known at the time, one of two routes to the pole from Russia, which had been done solo, or from Canada. and It was widely regarded as the harder route, of the two classic routes to the pole, um, and and through that process, which took me fifteen years, and I set up a guide service um, as part of my strategy to enable me to do that feat, uh, and I was so the first person to other do people. it. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, it was the, pretty much the first guide service taking people to the North Pole. Um, normally, relatively short treks, most people only had two or three weeks, uh, so we started at eighty-nine degrees north or eighty-eight, a bit further back from the pole, and you know, whether sixty or one hundred and twenty nautical miles. Um, from the pole and then spend some time pulling stages, putting up tents every night. And because I went there nearly every year for up to three months a year, I was building up a vast body of experience by 10,000 hours. I mm-hmm. Malcolm Gladwell and co. who talk about the value of, you know, that if you can do 10,000 hours in something, you're probably going to be pretty much the top of your tree. Uh, and that's how I did it. Um, so I really w- felt that I was able to, if you like, uh, move from the siege approach uh, when Everest was first summited on these big mountains it was like huge numbers of people lots of kids eventually getting two summiters or one summiter to the top um, which then switched to al- alpinism where you had highly competent highly confident individuals one or two people who would be up and down a mountain it you know for most people had, had breakfast yeah so how do to do that well that's where I was taking my my sort of community towards, I was a part of that process towards what you might loosely call a sort of alpine style approach to, to, to getting to the pole. And uh, I got there in 2003 and the most striking thing then for me was that I actually had to swim for between 30 and 45 hours to get from the coast of Canada to the pole across the open areas of open water or very thin ice that I couldn't walk on um, between the ice flows. And that was my huge sort of wake-up call. Like, right, something really massive is going on here, yeah. um, and no one really knows about it. And they didn't really back in two thousand and the um,
0: And they're swimming because was because the ice was melting. Or, or essentially,
1: it's complex, but essentially, there are several things going on up there. Um, most people, are, or many people, are aware of the. Um, increasingly reduced area of sea ice that is left covering the arctic ocean at the end of a summertime
0: yeah
1: it's it sometimes expands a little bit not quite so bad some years but it's the track is absolutely less and less yeah. um 2012 40 percent of what we call the central arctic ocean was open water um whereas it would have been 100 percent covered a few decades ago yeah
0: so you was so that that was a that swimming apart from being a uh, bit uh, chilly, oh, yeah, so, so, so. playing playing into your early experience of being left out in the cold, was was an eye opening experience, and and you really were in the foreground of bringing that to people's attention, weren't you?
1: Well, I, I had this opportunity. Um, I've I've spent um, over time over, over the last twenty five years. I've spent more time, probably than anybody else, travelling across the sea ice, and I really believe that I have a a. a, a a very unusual perspective all about and with relationship with really yeah. with sea ice. I really feel I understand it in ways that satellite operators viewing satellite data will really understand it from their perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But the two are, are, are both important uh, in forming uh, like a whole picture of, of really what's going on. And uh, and of course, I have stories to tell, yeah. which uh, uh, as increasingly I realize, it's not factual information, it's all, all very well, but. Um, Putting it in the context of uh, digestible, stimulating, interesting stories, which tend to be human interest stories, um, is a key way of getting people's interest Uh, and then awareness and then understanding. And if you can get that far down the line, then you're you're one step from concern and action. Yeah, yeah. Stories so are that's,
0: hugely important in this whole climate change debate, aren't they? I mean, we know that that people relate to they relate to situations and individual people or animals or environments that they see first, and then they go away and find out about the science and the stats and the figures. They, the, the, the figures and the stats on their own don't fire up people's imagination in the way that a story will.
1: No, and uh, and ultimately, people act on uh, on the basis of, of emotions. They do. Almost everything we do and say is actually driven by emotions, whether we recognise it or not. So if you don't have that in the picture, um, probably it's going to be a fairly sort of static um, situation. And, and I very much see the role of explorers as not only storytellers, but really more um, significantly, and, and dare I say, it sort of uniquely, but of course not entirely unique. But we are story makers.
0: Yeah.
1: And. Being able to make stories, actually generate the story in the first place, and that you are intrinsically linked with that story gives you a, a you you know it, then you do have that is your story, a story unique to you, and in undertaking the sort of um, endeavours and pro- research programs and so on that I do, uh, I can focus broader attention from the public and, and indeed scientists and indeed politicians in different ways from television programs right down to giving briefings to politicians you know it's the full range that an explorer can be invited to do you draw people in or up in my case up to my world um, stir them around a bit with mm-hmm. some you know stories uh, based, uh, into which you, you know, integrate lots of facts and figures and um, you are, in that way are able to start influencing decision making mm-hmm. which ultimately whether it's at a global Policy level, or whether it's at an individual, uh, personal level, uh, is what's needed.
0: Yeah, and what are you doing with your stories now? Because you've set up, 90 North, mm-hmm. which is both. I'm, I'm writing these, it both partly campaigning and influencing, but also some research element to it too. Mm-hmm. What do you want to happen? I mean, obviously, we need to. Well, I mean, we need to halt the, the, the melting of, of the ice, but that's going to be a pretty tough challenge, isn't it? So, what, what is it that you're pushing for?
1: So, um, as an explorer, uh, in, in, the, in the sense of storytelling, the biggest challenge that um, I have sort of undertaken is to put my shoulder to the wheel in bringing about a transformation of the public's understanding that what we are being invited to watch to date uh, the expansion and contraction, particularly in the in the summer times, of the sea ice is not just a geophysical process of seawater that is melting and freezing, and melting and freezing. While that does have um, massive implications as, as the reflective heat shield that that white lid can provide, uh, uh, you know, while that is really important um, you know, from a geophysical perspective, point of view, um, in terms of what, how much heat the surface of the Earth absorbs in any given year. Actually, the next thing we need to get is that sea ice is a habitat. Yeah. So what you're watching is a habitat expanding and contracting. And once you realise that, that it's a habitat upon which there are animals that live above it, birds, sea, sea birds, on it... We all know about the bears and other animals. Um, in it, plants and animals live in the sea ice that are key to the broader ecosystem. Um, and then there are things that live on the undersurface of the ice, yeah. only on the ice of the ice. And there are other animals that obviously live underneath sea ice. It is an ecosystem. And in fact, I've coined, I've coined the phrase that what, what it is, sea ice, is a floating ice reef ecosystem. Yeah. Now, once people realise it's a habitat, and therefore animals must be dependent upon it, you can start to, it's fairly obvious, a contraction of a habitat where the animals, the wildlife, and the plants are stressed. Yeah. And the more they're stressed, the worse it is, the more vulnerable that ecosystem is.
0: Yeah.
1: And my, So what I'm trying to do is say, right, everyone, please understand, this is a habitat, it's got some of our... Rather surprisingly, some of our largest and or most famous, best known, best loved marine mammals up there. You'll think, really, well, there's the bear. We've probably got a couple of seal. What else? Well, I can tell you that the second largest animal on Earth, um, its life cycle is based on sea ice, on the sea ice ecosystem, which is the bowhead whale. Uh, weighing up to 100,000 kilos, lives to over 270 years old. Um, We have um, narwhal, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: with a spiralled tooth, in fact, and and the source of the myth of the unicorn. Beluga whale, the only white whale in the world, Um, uh, also known as the canary of the sea, because it has the widest range of um, sort of sonar communications, underwater communications uh, sounds. Walrus. All three species or subspecies of walrus live in the Arctic Ocean and depend on sea ice. Uh, Killer whale. Now, killer whale, or I should say more accurately, um, orca. Then we have orca, um, uh, also known obviously by by some as a killer whale. They're not a whale. Well, technically, they are in the whale family, but they're actually the largest dolphin in the world. Um, There are subpopulations that live and are based up in the Arctic Ocean. So... Uh, And then, of course, the seal. There are six species of seal, including the ribbon seal. If you want to look that up on Google under images, uh, uh, you might be slightly surprised what you see. It's a pretty unusual uh, animal. All of these are marine mammals. And I haven't mentioned the bear. So um, it's a zoo up there. And all or part of their life cycles depend on the existence of sea ice. So what I'm saying is the international waters, that's anywhere more than 200 miles north of the coastal states, countries that surround the Arctic Ocean, so that's basically Alaska, America, Canada, Denmark, Greenland, Norway, Russia. Um, Once you go 20 miles north of their northernmost beaches, you're in international waters that basically surround the North Geographic Pole. And I'm working uh, over the rest of my rest of life mission really, is to uh, create, catalyse the process within the United Nations Policymaking Forum for Marine Conservation, uh, whereby we can get a North Pole Marine Reserve. Now, marine reserve is the highest level of conservation that can be achieved for a marine environment. Uh, it will be the largest r- wildlife refuge, park, reserve in the world, land or sea. Yeah. Um, Three million square kilometres, about the area of the Mediterranean Sea. So part of my work Already is to start introducing this idea that it's a habitat and some stress stress species up there. Second part of my work is to say, look, there are three stressors that we humans, who actually have already substantially been responsible for melting it in the first place, uh, are about to add. No, not appropriate. Um, this is a you know an entirely unique um, definitive ecosystem that we know almost nothing about. Just because you can don't go and exploit it. So I'm talking about commercial fishing. Well, I've told you that 40% of the area is already open water in the summer, so commercial fishing could happen at any time. Yeah. It happens that there's a mm-hmm. voluntary ban by all the, all the big um, fishing states not to fish it until 2032. So that's great. We've got a holding pattern there. Yeah. But it's only voluntary and it, it's not legally enforceable. Second is um, international shipping. Shipping is based... Uh, its whole sort of business model is saving cost. So it'll always do the cheapest possible thing per mile. Well, currently, most shipping from the Pacific Rim and Asian countries, um, the, the manufacturing manufactured goods that are coming into Europe or America, they either come up through the Panama Canal or through the Suez Canal. But in the next 20 to 50 years, they'll be able to come through the Bering Strait, where Siberia, Russia, sort of almost touches a 50-mile straight gap before you get to Alaska, uh, uh, and obviously by America, um, that is an international shipping straight. Anyone can go through that. They will come up through there, straight over the top, over the North Pole, and then split left to Rotterdam and the European market, or right underneath Greenland into the port of New York, into the US and North American market. So, my no, no, don't do that, because international shipping is... is surprisingly disruptive especially to ecosystems and species larger species that are not used to um, the noise the acoustic noise which is like a not noise pollution. pollution and there's pollution there's risks of accidents which is relevant but actually the grand scheme of things my personal view is that it's very topical and easy to people Ooh, we can't have an oil spill yeah true but it's there are other things that are more damaging ongoing yeah. um, never mind an accident that's happening anyway um, so, due to shipping, uh, so I don't want to push shipping out to the side of the reserve. Um, and uh, lastly, of course, there's mineral deep sea mining and, and mineral extraction. But well, fortunately, there isn't. The geology is, does not suggest that there's any meaningful amounts of oil or gas in these international waters. So it may well be that um, the sort of hydrocarbon fossil fuel industry would be supportive of this initiative because mm-hmm. it's a win-win from them. They don't need the area anyway. So. Um, uh, I've set, this, I set up this um, uh, small charity a 19 North unit which both runs research and we have a partnership with the University of Exeter uh, with a whole Arctic Ocean yeah. research facility um, ready to go just looking for the funding now to get the professors and the doctorates in place and uh, this advocacy programme within the international policy community to just catalyse the process I can't bring about an international treaty that is what's going to have to be got and Over the next few years, something called the UN High Seas Treaty, which sort of oversees international waters, um, will get this extra piece of legislation in there which will enable legally enforceable agreements to be put in place. So the timing is about right for us to have this an internationally enforceable treaty, if you like, where we all agree it's a marine reserve, science only, just like Antarctica.
0: Incredibly important. What can uh, listeners to Planet Pod do? How can we help you?
1: Well... Um, if I was in America, I'd say, "Well, gee, guys, you know, you know what you've got to do. I need the funds, uh, and it, and we and, and we need it, and we're worth it, and we are a small fighting force that can deliver you know, massively above our, our weight with the with impact." Um, I've actually already given a speech at the United Nations uh, at a United Nations conference run by the International Maritime Organization and got applause, led by Secretary General of the International Maritime Organization about this work that I've okay. been talking about. You know, they're up for it, they just need people like me to stir it up and project this vision of where we need to head um, relentlessly and with flavour. But,
0: but we've seen when when the public grasp mm. an issue around mm. conservation, mm. as they've done with mm. plastic mm. unit you know, by, by Attenborough and Blue Planet. Mm. Um, you know we can mobilize things so so are you asking for public mobilization i mean obviously funds are important so people mm. can donate and yep. they can sponsor the research but are you asking for us to, to, to rise up in protection of that incredibly well, important part of our, of our world for, uh,
1: for me to have the ambition or to somehow play a, a, a leadership role in the initial stages at least or bring about an international treaty that's pretty ambitious but you know and that is it isn't just me uh, it's it's sort of an idea which I will drive but it's going to require an ever expanding collaborative network of NGOs with public support yeah. so one thing that people can do to help is if they clock on to um, my Twitter account in particular or Instagram account and just start um, you know repeating and liking and sharing spread the word of the importance of what we're trying to do it does all count Um Uh, funding always, because you know, it may what can I say it's very hard to do stuff without funds Um, but our main source of funding will be philanthropists and uh, grant awarding bodies so I'm not actually looking to the public to help in that particular sphere, not at the moment Uh, anyway what I personally really feel is that I can't help thinking that we almost need a messiah-like figure who can somehow, a bit like the the Pied Piper, um, can um, rise up above and provide a positive, crystal clear vision of where it is we can all go to with this sustainability piece. The sustainability piece has been hijacked by business and it's now about... Sustainability in business um, is about being sustainable as a business and just going on forever, mm-hmm. which includes being you know good to the environment. But it's, I, I think we need more people which people can coalesce and support. Um, we need leadership. The second uh, thing, I think, is that business does have a huge role to play. Because if governments are struggling, which they clearly are, especially the British government at, at, at this particular moment, to do uh, much beyond its immediate um, priority or with Brexit, um, businesses have enormous audiences. Yeah. They call them stakeholders. But they have the names, addresses, texts, emails of these um, stakeholders some of them are clients or customers or suppliers uh, local communities and employees and so on so
0: they can mobilize they can mobilize if they if they
1: if if they chose to and you know for those that do early early stage like now there are enormous uh, gains reputationally uh, uh, to be had because it's a clear it's a clear field it's uncluttered by other businesses doing it yeah. Um, the thing I led the Arctic Survey that was sponsored by the Catlin Group, an insurance, uh, you know, global insurance so company. A, they, a... they got enormous benefits. Absolutely. There aren't many opportunities out there yet. Yeah, the market, if you will, is not sophisticated enough to be generating international projects and events and entities that.
0: So we need brand. leadership. We need mobilisation yeah. for, oh,
1: for business. For the has business has a huge role to play yeah. because it's a win-win for them. Yeah. The more reputationally good they are, the more support they're going to have from all their stakeholders so it's a no-brainer just everyone terribly timid at the moment they just need to know it's up to us now politicians can't do the heavy lifting and the the third thing is we need to somehow create it's not just so much awareness but a more balanced consistent view of what is really happening as far as the scientists are aware so at the moment, far too many relatively small groups who are very well-funded and resourced and got very clever strategies have been able to put in almost an equal amount of input into the debate, whether it's in newspapers or radio mm-hmm. or TV. And, and it just keeps pulling people off off message. It's just unbalancing yeah. the whole thing, distorting what's really going on. And I don't blame the public as a general so you know, it's... It's gonna be hard enough to, to, to actually get people voluntarily to change their behaviours. Extremely hard to do when there are very good, obvious, immediate things, you know, stop smoking and say, yeah, well I can't stop eating fatty foods. Well, I just feel like them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow, it's really hard.
0: But time is running out.
1: Time yeah, is running out. System. So what I would so what can people do at a at a first level? There are a few basic things that people will be familiar with, you know, eating less. Uh, red meat or meat generally, for example, buying produce that is more locally produced and so on and so on, maybe not going on quite so many uh, flights. You know what you really ought to be doing to get the the big driver, which is carbon, you know, greenhouse gases, fossil fuel use down. The other thing I would say that's important to remember, if you just switch a a standby light off on your uh, TV, um, is that really worth it? You no, it's not, it's not going to make a slight bit of difference. But three important things to remember. The first is, there are lots of other people like you doing it, okay? yeah. And the numbers are growing. That does amount to a hill of beans on a daily basis. Secondly, if you tell your family and friends, when your children's friends come over and they don't turn the standby off and you give them a ticking off and explain why you're doing it, and you are therefore spreading the word, you're amplifying your approach greatly. Uh, and they will tell their friends and so on. So this ripple goes out. And you've got millions of people doing this. Things will happen much quicker than you might imagine. I mean, just look at how social media works and how many people rally around a particular project. And suddenly someone's got yeah. £500,000 because they help somebody on, on the street side. It's like, we can do this. Social media can help. And the last thing is, remember, it's not just turning it off, that standby light off for one just once. It, you're going to do it for the rest of your life, that so over your lifetime, yes, that individual flicking off does start to amount to a beans.
0: As we always say on Planet Pod, many small changes amount to a great change, and we need to do this together. Ben, it's been absolutely fascinating. We could sit here for hours and hours and hours, but you have somewhere to be. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, and we will take your words to heart. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.